welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome back as we continue in series four on the Sermon on the Mount and we're looking at the rights and wrongs of self-defence. Our text today is Matthew 5 verses 38 to 42. There's a parallel passage in Luke 6 verses 27 to 31. We're going to base ourselves in Matthew's account as we continue this exciting series on the Sermon on the Mount. As I've introduced the other episodes so far, I've reminded us as we start that the Sermon on the Mount comes relatively early in Jesus' ministry after he's had a successful tour of Galilee and critically after he's just appointed the 12 apostles as his primary colleagues to advance his mission. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with a focus on attitudes, the Beatitudes, then Jesus describes the fact that he's going to fulfill the Old Testament law of Moses. This is really important foundation, particularly for the sections we're looking at in the episodes just before and after this one, where in Matthew 5 verses 17 to 20, he says he's not going to abolish the law of Moses, he's going to fulfill it. And that means redefine it and also correct some misunderstandings about the law of Moses. So some things will no longer be applicable, some will be applicable in a deeper way. And today we come to one of the most important ethical issues that Christians face, and it's about self-defense, it's about resisting evil, it's about violence, it's about human relationships between people and families and clans and nations and societies. And it's an issue that faces us wherever we live in the world, whatever context we are, Christian disciples, this text is really important. And so we're going to go through it very carefully and try and understand it in its original context very specifically as we proceed today. The Sermon on the Mount is basically giving us the foundational ethics for discipleship. It's one of the most important texts in Jesus's whole ministry. So let's read first of all the passage that we're going to study. It's Matthew 5 verses 38 to 42. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All of us will probably agree this is one of the most challenging passages in the whole New Testament. It's quite difficult for us to embrace what Jesus is saying about our discipleship calling in terms of the apparent way he says that we are to allow certain evil things to happen to us and, and even to expect that they will happen to us. So we need to explain this passage and get to its meaning very carefully. And our starting point is the quotation that Jesus gives. At the beginning, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye 
and tooth for tooth. Well, that's a very famous expression, isn't it? It's gone into common usage in many different languages, certainly in the English language. We use it as we discuss things in human relationships today. But what matters for us is to find the original context of this statement, which is a quotation from the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. We've discussed the Law of Moses in previous episodes. We looked at it very closely when we looked at Matthew 5, 17 to 20, which I mentioned earlier on. The Law of Moses had over 600 commands and was considered God's law for the people of God at that particular time. But this is a particular quotation, and we're going to look at it in its original context. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25 is the original context. I think it's helpful for me to actually read the context and reflect on what it's saying to its original hearers. This is in a section in the Law of Moses which deals with personal injuries so a fight and conflicts and injuries that take place between people in society. And here is what it says, verse 22 to 25 of Exodus 21. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is a serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, the first thing to notice about this passage is that this is about what the law courts allow. The court is mentioned here in verse 22. So the thing to notice is this is not about individual decisions to respond to an injury by fighting back or gaining revenge. It's not what individuals do as individuals that's being discussed here. It's what the court will allow when an injury or an offence has occurred. So that's the first thing to notice. We think of this in terms of if someone does something to me, then I'm going to do something to him, like an individual conflict. But the context here is the judicial process of Israel. The local courts dealt with these personal injury claims and they allowed for an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. In other words, an equivalent punishment for the person who had committed the offence or the act of violence. Now, the point about this is, first of all, the seriousness of the original offence, and secondly, the fact this prevented a vendetta or a gradually increasing series of acts of revenge, which is commonly what happens in society when people are left to themselves. In many of our cultures, particularly cultures that focus on honour and shame, if you insult a member of my family, then I must take an act of revenge against you or a member of your family, and then your family want to do something against me. And the whole thing escalates and it increases in intensity. Many of us in our different cultures around the world will be familiar with this cycle where shame is brought on a family 
by a particular action, their honour needs to be upheld and so an act of revenge takes place and this can scale up and increase in intensity and often leads to what we call honour killings. So this is not for private application, this is the court saying if this act has been done, here is an equivalent punishment for that person who committed it and that is the end of the matter. It's not a matter for individuals to decide to continue to increase the vendettas and revenge. Now, the problem with this was that at the time of Jesus, people often used this text that I've mentioned from Exodus as a justification for individual acts of revenge. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's redefining this totally. He's introducing a new ethic for Christians, a new principle of dealing with conflicts. And it starts with a principle that we are not to resist an evil person. Now, a little bit more about the context is necessary in order to understand this. The context suggests that the evil person is hostile to Christianity. This is about acts of hostility by people against Christians because of their faith. We might call this persecution in a small or large way. Jesus is thinking about the fact that his disciples are going to be opposed in Israel very shortly. They're going to become unpopular with the authorities and there will be acts against them. There will be things that people do against them. And he lists some of the things that are likely to happen and he gives a very specific answer as to what people should do in each of these cases. So let's just go through these because he actually outlines four different situations of things that may happen. Bearing in mind these hadn't happened yet to the disciples. It was early days. The followers of Jesus were in a situation where Jesus was immensely popular and successful in Galilee. People loved him. They flocked to hear his teaching. His healings were spectacular and brought great adulation to him. So the disciples were having an easy time. But Jesus anticipated that as his message became clearer, his message that demanded obedience, repentance, faith in him, turning from evil actions, as that developed, then his followers would not always be popular and some people would single them out to undermine them and to attack them in different ways. Here are a few examples. Verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Here we're talking about a personal insult in many societies, even today. To slap somebody on the cheek is an intended, serious, public insult. It's humiliating. And the natural response is to attack that person back. But Jesus says, no, turn the other cheek. Allow the insult. Don't get defensive when you are insulted for your faith. 
That's difficult. That takes moral courage and self-control. Jesus is preparing his disciples for a time when this will be a common experience. People will insult them, either verbally or with physical actions, such as a slap on the cheek or something similar. The second thing that Jesus speaks about here in verse 40 is something slightly different. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This is an unjustified lawsuit. He talks here about suing them. Someone who wants to take them to court, perhaps even does take them to court, because of their faith, with some unjustified claim against them, demanding physical goods off them. And Jesus said that we should even allow unjustified lawsuits. If we are being attacked for our faith, then we shouldn't be defensive in that situation. An occasional attack of this nature is to be responded to by grace, kindness and the willingness to share our goods. What Jesus suggests here is absolutely amazing and incredible. A form of openness and vulnerability that many Christians find hard to imagine. But the early disciples did live in this kind of way, trusting in God primarily to protect them rather than trusting in their own ability to protect themselves. The third example in verse 41 is something different again. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now the Roman mile is approximately 1.5 kilometers. And who is it that could ask you to go with them for one mile for or one and a half kilometers? Well, the background here is that the Roman army, the occupying force in Israel at the time, had the right to ask any citizen of the country to carry a load for them for the distance of one Roman mile, one and a half kilometers. It was allowed. It was a, a regular thing to, to do. Sometimes it was done just for convenience of the soldiers. Sometimes it was done just to humiliate the Jewish people. The Roman army was very unpopular and people would want to resist this possibility if soldiers approached them on the street and said, right, you've got to carry my bags for one and a half kilometres up the road. Here they are. Get on with it. I'm coming behind you. They've got a sword. Very humiliating. But Jesus says, allow yourselves to be humiliated. Even offer to go the second mile, not just one and a half kilometres, but three kilometres. This is really astonishing. An openness, a vulnerability, a lack of wanting to defend ourselves. This is something that Jesus uh, said would characterise true Christian discipleship, true followers of Jesus. I'm sure as we're going through all these examples, you're thinking, as I'm thinking, can I live this way? What happens if this happens to me? Isn't this too risky? Shouldn't we be much more self-defensive and assertive 
if we come under this kind of pressure? Well, Jesus is encouraging us to think in the opposite kind of way. And it's based on trusting God as our defenders, we shall discuss a little bit as we come towards the end of this episode. So here is the third example. The fourth one is in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This may be a reference to poor people in the country who consider that Christians are generous and kind, share their possessions Maybe a, a reference to people a little bit more malicious who've got plenty of resources, but they think Christians are easily influenced to give away their money to them. But in either case, it's a remarkable statement here. It's encouraging us to be generous to those people who apparently have need. Now, some of us live in societies where very few people like that are seen around on the streets. Some of us live in countries where there are thousands and thousands of people just living on the street and living in extreme poverty, living in slums and shanty towns. How could we possibly apply this? Jesus doesn't exactly say what you should give to people. And if you have a hundred people begging from you, clearly you can't supply them with finance. It's simply impossible. He doesn't say exactly what we should give. It requires wisdom. And sometimes we can give to people in non-material way if we haven't any material resources to share with them. But the underlying principle here is that an attitude of openness to give and share with other people is part of this vulnerability and lack of self-defensiveness that Jesus is identifying as a core value of Christian discipleship in this passage. This is a massive contrast to the Jewish insistence on the principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they justified personal revenge on the basis of this text. Now, it was never intended to be used for personal revenge anyway, as we discussed when we looked at the original context in Exodus 21. But Jesus refutes that completely, saying, in a sense, that he's bringing a new ethic, a new way of living, do not resist an evil person. And the evil person is motivated in this context by their opposition to Christian discipleship and being followers of Jesus. That's a key in order to understand this text. Now, this doesn't tell us anything about defending others. And we have a duty in society to defend other people. That's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about is Christians being attacked for their faith in a number of different ways. Luke's account has one extra saying at the end, which is not recorded in Matthew. Luke 6 verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you kindness, generosity, openness. These are the things that should characterise our attitudes to other people. Not taking up arms, getting violent, getting defensive, getting abusive, cursing people if they curse you, fighting in the streets. None of these things are part of Christian discipleship. And if we live in an honour-shame culture, 
we realize that it's quite difficult for us to realize that there are occasions as Christians when we will be dishonored for our faith and we don't have the freedom from Jesus to respond in a matter of revenge in the way that many honor shame cultures allow. This is surely one of the most challenging texts in the Sermon on the Mount. It requires real reflection and prayer to think, how do I apply this in my own life? I know what it feels like to have people seeking to insult me for my faith. You've probably had that experience too. Maybe you've had more severe experiences of opposition than that. And so as we think about the application of this text, I'm going to spend a few minutes as we come to our reflections at the end of this talk, just trying to think about some applications and make some links between the original situation there and the sort of situations that you or I may face in the 21st century as Christian disciples in different nations of the world. First thing to remember is that Jesus is describing the situation where there is no state protection of the Christian community. When it started out, the followers of Jesus and the apostles and the book of Acts and the ministry of Paul and so on, the state was not committed to defend the church. The church had no legal status in the Roman Empire for many, many years. And it was considered an informal offshoot or cult from Judaism. And so no one was there to defend the Christians. And so this situation describes what to do when you haven't got the defense of the state. Now, in many modern countries, through legal processes, there are ways that the church's identity and ministry and rights are secured and we can call on the legal process and the governments and the police to uphold those things which are in the law. In the early days, as described in this context, there was no such provision. Now, there's a further thing to say. What happens if the opposition to the church becomes so extreme that it becomes very difficult to live in a particular location, particular part of your country, a particular society, or even in a country as a whole. Christians throughout the ages have faced this issue. It's not directly addressed here, but it's interesting that in Matthew 10 verse 23, when Jesus is talking to his apostles about their forthcoming mission in Israel, Matthew 10 Verse 23, it says, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So alongside this text, which tells us how to deal with individual acts of opposition, if we get to a situation of general persecution where it's not practical or viable to live in a place, we also have the option of moving. It's a very traumatic and difficult option to move, to flee persecution. But it happens. It's happening in our world, in many different parts of the world, as I give this talk in, in the early part of the 21st century. And that may be true in your country or in countries known to you. 
And so we need to balance these things together. If opposition arises within our culture, we deal with it graciously and non-defensively. If it becomes intolerable and impractical for us to live, we have the option of fleeing to a safer place. This passage also speaks to our attitudes. It speaks about avoiding an attitude of vengefulness or defensiveness or anger against other people. As we'll see very shortly, Jesus goes on to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is a call to love your enemies by allowing these difficult acts to take place and trusting God to deliver you from them. In a healthy society, the government and the police and the law court should defend you. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to expect. As we work out how this passage was used in the early church and how this teaching was used, let me just bring to you two examples to think about. First of all, Jesus himself. If you actually analyse and study the life of Jesus, as we're doing now, and if you follow me through the whole of the Word Online teaching in Jesus, all 14 series, you'll find that Jesus, in a remarkable way, fulfills exactly what he teaches here. When he was insulted, he didn't take acts of revenge. When he was brought before the law courts and tried at the time of his trial, at the end of his life, he allowed injustice to take place. Jesus modelled this lifestyle and it was based on a fundamental trust in God his Father to protect him. The second example I want to give you is of Paul the Apostle. Now Paul, as he travelled around the Roman Empire, had something in his favour. He had official citizenship of the Roman Empire which not many people did. Citizenship wasn't granted to many people. It, it involved uh, legal rights that other people didn't have. So when he on one occasion was on trial, as recorded in the book of Acts in Israel uh, at a place called Caesarea under the Roman authorities and he was being interrogated, after a bit he made this dramatic statement in Acts 25 verse 11. He said, I appeal to Caesar the emperor. And what he meant was that as a Roman citizen, he didn't want to be tried in that place in Caesarea. He wanted to go to the imperial court in Rome, which was supervised by the Roman emperor. And he had a legal right to that situation. He appealed to it and so he was sent to Rome. He wanted to get a fair hearing. So these two examples suggest to us that when we have civil society, the government, the police, the army, the judiciary that uh, give us protection, we should seek that out and use it to the best we can. If we don't, as Jesus didn't, then we have to trust God because there may not be any legal remedy for some of the things that happen to us. And if that gets too severe for us, then sometimes Christian communities and Christian families have to move from one country 
to another. Another important reflection as we come to a conclusion is that this passage doesn't talk to us directly about military service or working in the police force of our nation. This speaks to us about how we function as individual private citizens who are disciples when we are challenged or attacked by other people because of our faith. So whether we join military forces or police forces or not in our nations cannot be decided on the basis of this text alone. There are other important texts, such as the first few verses in Romans 13, that speak about the role of government, and we have to think about that issue in that context. The gospel is not advanced by force. It is the power of the message and the power of the witness of the Christian community and the power of the signs of God in that Christian community that causes the church to advance. We're called to a radical lifestyle of trusting in God and no more so than when our faith is being directly challenged by people who insult us, who want to take us to court, who want to take some of our possessions, who conscript us to do things like the Roman army could do with Jewish citizens. At that time, the character of our faith stands out. Jesus truly calls us to radical discipleship, and this is a key example of that discipleship. Do join us for the next episode as we continue this discussion and we look at the important issue of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, which is directly related to the passage that we've studied today. Thanks for joining and listening with us today. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.